Well, as much as we love all the wonder of Christmas, uh, with all the lights, the presents, and the carols, we know that Good Friday's coming, that there is so much more for Jesus to do and accomplish. Over the next few weeks and months, we're going to be traveling the road to Calvary with Jesus, studying the many facets of his life, his ministry, and his teaching. And we begin this morning by looking at some of the very first years of his life. And we know that this is some of the first years of his life because of, uh, of Herod. Herod kind of gives us the time frame in his horrific decree in which he orders the killing of all the male children under the age of two, right? This suggests to us that Jesus is actually not a newborn at this time, but actually likely probably about a year old or, or even a little older. So um, with that in mind, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin looking at Matthew 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes and of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in his dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this word to us that you have recorded this moment in time and history that you might remind us, that you might comfort us uh, by the truths of your scripture. We pray that you would do so now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Are there any NASA space enthusiasts in the room? Enthusiasts in the room? Maybe a handful, maybe not. Well, I'm not uh, a space enthusiast per se, but it was really hard for me not to get caught up in the most recent news that came out of NASA and a joint effort that took place. Well, on Christmas Day, just over a week ago now, NASA, in collaboration with several other international agencies, space agencies, finally launched the James Webb Space Telescope into space. Okay, this was an effort that involved over a thousand workers, over 25 years of work, and over 10 or almost 10 billion dollars in resources. Okay, huge project, huge effort. Well, it launched on Christmas Day. Uh, that launching marked not only the successful sending of the largest and most complex uh, 
telescope ever launched into space, but it also commenced, and I think this is probably the, perhaps the most interesting part, it commenced one of the most complex sequence of deployments ever attempted in any single space mission, okay? So one of the major reasons for the complexity of this, of this launch and this mission had to do with the size of the telescope, right? And the fact that it had to fit into this limited payload, right? Imagine a cylinder about 15 feet wide in diameter. It's no bigger than this stage. And, uh, and you had to fit a, uh, a telescope in there, the largest telescope. Um, obviously, this would not be uh, in ordinary circumstances. This wouldn't be a problem. However, the sun shield alone on this telescope is the size of a tennis court. Okay, so you have to imagine a tennis court fitting inside of a stage. You know, a dive, a dive um, a diameter, a tube, the diameter of this right behind me. And so, uh, in order for this to happen. This is, this is fascinating. The telescope has to fold up like origami to fit into this cylinder, okay? And then not only does it have to fold up to fit inside of this tube, but it has to be able to, once it's deployed and in space, it has to be able to unfold itself through a series of different mechanisms that have already been pre-programmed, right, with no help from anybody else, right, besides those in the space station, uh, and unfold itself into position, okay? This is a, a very crucial two-week-long process, okay? And the stakes are high, but the possibility for error is even higher, okay? With over 300 single points of failure, okay? That's 300 opportunities for it to mess up, okay? Uh, 300 points uh, in the unfolding process, right? And then, get this, there's no way, once it's in space, to repair it or service it, okay? Because it's going to be, it's going a million miles away where no humans have ever gone before. So with the Hubble Space Telescope, when it went into space, some of the first images we got back were blurry, right? They, you couldn't see them, right? And so we actually sent some space engineers out there, and they went and fixed it, fine-tuned it, and, and now we get the beautiful images that we get today back from them, right? You can't do that with this telescope, right? $10 billion sent out into space, nothing you can do about it. One thing goes wrong, okay? Those are the stakes that, that are at place here, right? One mistake, one misfire, one malfunction can mean failure of the whole operation, as you can imagine, there's been lots of time uh, and effort that's been put in on the front end in order to ensure the success of this f unfolding process that takes place, right? There's been extra inspection points, extra testing, uh, extra backup plans, and even uh, built-in redundancies, right? But even with all of these things, there's no guarantees. At the end of the day, 25 years of hard work $10 billion of expenses and resources are subject to threats known and unknown. Threats of violent turbulence on the way up, unpredictable meteor showers, and even the possible human error. The outcome is simply uncertain, and all hopes could be dashed in an instance. Well, in our passage this morning, there is a glaring threat to the unfolding of God's plan. And it's not the possible failure of a bunch of release mechanisms. It's a person, and his name is Herod. King Herod, uh, as we all know, or many of us know, is, was a ruthless uh, ruler. He was driven by paranoia and a pursuit of power. History tells us that he actually had a number of his family members killed because he was threatened by them, and he was worried that they were going to take his power from him. Uh, so these were not empty threats on Jesus, right? These were real threats with real cause for fear. 
I mention this because I think it is very important for us to understand this, okay? Uh, It's important for us to realize that it's into this context, this context of threats, these contexts of suffering, of pain, of misery, that Jesus is born, okay? And it's in this context that Matthew, the writer of our gospel, meets us, not only the original audience, but us, with words of comfort and hope in the midst of a sin-stricken world. And he comforts us by way of fulfilled prophecy. In our passage, there are, over, there are three different occasions of fulfilled prophecy. One in verse 6, one in verse 15, and one in verse 18. And each of them have different implications. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. And uh, before we do that, I want to set the stage. So beginning in verse 1, we're actually told that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Well, the word for magi is actually where we get our English word magicians, okay? Um, but these magicians aren't like the magicians that we have today. So I don't want you to think David Blaine, right? This is, they're not David Blaine, right? Rather, these are Gentile astronomers, okay? These are the PhDs of the day. These are scholars from the east, probably and perhaps likely from Persia. Uh, And we know these kinds of men weren't completely foreign to us, right? We actually see uh, one of these men in the the Old Testament. It was Daniel. Daniel was actually called one of these, called a wise man. Uh, In fact, uh, he was appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar uh, as the chief of the Magi. And then he was, as we know, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a number of dreams that needed to be interpreted. And uh, he ends up, Joseph ends up interpreting these dreams for him. Well, many scholars think that it's actually possible that the wise men that we find in our passage this morning actually would have been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and the prophecies because of the earlier influence of Daniel, okay? Um, And this would explain their journey with this star and coming and their arrival here in Jerusalem. Well, verse 2 gives us even further insight. So we're told, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Well, verse 2 tells us about a star. And somehow they associated this star with the king, the birth of the king of the Jews. Now there's been a lot of speculation about the connection here uh, and how they made this connection. Uh, and, but most of the commentators hold to at least one of, the, of two options. It could be that like Mary and Joseph, how they received supernatural revelation in the form of like an angel or something like that about the birth of Jesus. Well, they, that, these, that these wise men were also given this news and told this connection through some sort of special revelation like that as well. That's a possibility. We don't know for sure. Or it could be that they trace, like I suggested, they trace their knowledge back to Daniel and to his friends uh, from the time of Israel's exile back in Babylon, okay? And they were anticipating this star because of the revelation from the Hebrew scriptures, okay? Passages like uh, Numbers 24, 17, which actually mentions a star. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, okay? We can't be certain, but both are seemingly very real possibilities. But we do know one thing. 
we know that these wise men saw this star, associated it with the Christ, and it excited them. It excited them so much that they went on this journey, this journey to discover for themselves. And in their coming to worship him, we see my first point, okay? With the arrival of Jesus into a sin-stricken world, God reveals the comfort of a new king, a new and better king. We see this in verses 1 through 12. These wise men, they show up in Jerusalem, the royal city, right? The city where you would go and expect to find a king, right? In, in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and they start asking around about this new king. And to our shock, and the reader's shock, right? The people that you would expect to know about the birth of this new king don't know. They're clueless, right? Herod, no idea. The religious leaders, the teachers of the Bible, the law, the pastors of the day, no idea. They had no idea that Christ, the king, had been born. And so uh, that word actually spreads, and it eventually makes its way to Herod. Uh, and we're told that Herod is troubled. And not only is Herod troubled, but so is all of Jerusalem with him. Okay? As, Her as far as Herod and Rome are, con are concerned, Herod is the king of the Jews. All right? And he, and there is only room for one king in the world, like, or in, in Jerusalem, and that's Herod. Uh, and Jerusalem is troubled because they know that Herod is a paranoid king uh, and a paranoid man. And they know that uh, when someone tries to usurp Herod's position and power, things don't go well, okay? Uh, and for all of those involved. And so Herod calls this meeting of the religious minds, okay? And he inquires where the Christ is to be born, okay? This is the second big indication that the king, uh, that these wise men had come to worship, was someone greater than an earthly king, okay? They were not looking for Herod, the king of the Jews. They were looking for the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and this was obvious to Herod, hence why he inquires with the religious leaders about where to find the Christ, well, I mentioned that was the second big indication. The first big indication is that uh, this toddler king was attracting the worship of the nations, okay? This is remarkable. Think about it. These magi had traveled possibly hundreds of miles to worship a child because of the outworking of God's providence in their life. And they came offering not only their worship, their gifts, but their obedience. They came doing all of these, these things. It is quite remarkable to see. Um, clearly, this child king was no localized king. He was the universal king. He was the king of the entire universe. Not only do we see the king's greatness uh, in the fact that he is, has universal reign, but we see it in the fact that he is a shepherd king. And we see this in the prophecy that we find in verse 6, but also in his contrast to Herod. When the religious leaders tell Herod that Christ is to be born in Bethlehem, they are quoting Micah 5.2, okay? And this passage tells us that Christ would be the shepherd of God's people, okay? He would be the one, in other words, he would be the shepherd king. Well, unlike Herod, this king would rule with righteousness and justice and grace. 
Unlike Herod, this king would seek the best for the people and he would lead by way of humility. Well, with the news of this new king, it is no wonder that Herod would respond and do what he does next. Having heard from the religious leaders, he decides that he wants to speak to these wise men for himself. So he calls a secret meeting, he sends them to Bethlehem to inquire where he's born, and then he tells them to report back their findings to them whenever they discover him, so that he might quote-unquote, worship uh, this child king himself. Well, as we will quickly see, uh, this couldn't be any farther from the truth. We find out the real reason in verses 12 through 13. And see, after the wise men depart, they find Jesus in Bethlehem, they worship him, they offer him gifts, and then they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And we find out the details of this warning later on in verse 13, which we'll read in just a little bit. But it becomes very clear, very quickly, that Herod's real intentions are actually to kill Jesus. And we know from history and from his track record that this is no empty threat. Herod had a violent streak. He had killed out of paranoia before, and he would certainly do it again. Jesus' life was truly in danger. The future of the promised one was really being threatened. And yet, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this uncertainty, we find comfort, and once again, it comes in the form of fulfilled prophecy. Turn with me in your bulletin to panel number five. Okay, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Um, Hosea, we find out, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, with the arrival of Jesus into a sin-stricken world, God not only reveals the comfort of a greater king, but he reveals the comfort of a greater Israel. Okay, let me explain what I mean. Because of the threat on Jesus' life, Mary and Joseph end up taking refuge in Egypt, okay? And they stay there until the coast is clear. Now, you have to imagine, from Mary and Joseph's perspective, right, this could not have seen like plan A to them, okay? This couldn't have seen like plan A. They were just told, possibly a year earlier, that they were going to be give birth and parent the Savior of the world. They probably didn't imagine themselves running for their lives uh, because of their lives were being threatened a year later, right? They would have been scared, They would have been confused. They would have been puzzled by the circumstance, right? Perhaps they would have thought to themselves, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. I don't, um, we're we're confused by this. And and we can resonate with this, can't we? Like there, I'm sure there are moments in our times where we have thought the same, where we have wondered, like we we have racked our minds trying to understand the circumstances of our life and why they've worked out the way that they have and we don't understand it. Yet here, is the glory of this passage, okay? From God's perspective, he was fulfilling 
greater purposes, okay? And so there's a teaching lesson for us here. What seems like chaos to you and I is actually God's sovereign control over sin using what was intended for evil ultimately for our good. Uh, one of these purposes we see is revealed here. Matthew makes this connection uh, for us when he associates this event, this event of Jesus going, fleeing into Egypt and then coming out of Egypt with Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, out of Egypt I have called my son, verse 15. Now, at first glance, it seems as though Matthew is kind of stretching it a little bit here. Like he's stretching this fulfillment of prophecy um, in the connection here. And if you actually look at the original context, this verse is actually referring back to Israel's exodus, okay? Um, and out of Egypt and Israel's in, uh, subsequent idolatries. So clearly this is not a direct prophecy about Jesus and his family coming out of Egypt, okay? Well, I think Matthew knew this. Um, I, I after all, Matthew, more than any gospel writer, goes to great lengths to show that the birth, the life, and death of Christ is actually firmly rooted in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, and he is very careful about doing so. Rather, what I think is going on here is that Matthew is using this idea of fulfillment, fulfilled in a broader sense, okay? He's using it in a broader sense. In one sense, fulfillment, like we typically think about it, is, is a prediction and fulfillment, right? It would be like the prophecy earlier from Micah 5.2 that predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, right? We know about 700 years later, that's the case. He's born in Bethlehem. So we see something revealed and then something fulfilled. Well, uh, I think there's another sense in which this Greek word fulfill can actually mean something much uh, more broad, right? And, and simply it could just mean to fill up, okay? That's what it means. It just means to fill up. To fill up to the point of overflowing. Uh, to become its truest and fullest expression uh, is what it means. Uh, and I think it's in this sense, this broader sense, that Matthew is ascribing fulfillment to Jesus here, okay? So simply put, put if you're still tracking with me, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the better Israel. He's the better son. Like Israel, Jesus spent time in Egypt, and he was brought safely out of Egypt. However, unlike Israel, Jesus was actually faithful and obedient where Israel was not. We see this not only here, but we see it over and over again in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel, okay? Uh, for, for instance, uh, like Israel, who, who after leaving Egypt, passes through the Red Sea, so Jesus, when he leaves Egypt, what are we going to see in the next section of, of this passage? Well, after this, we're going to see that he passes through the waters of baptism, okay? See a parallel? Uh, like Israel, after passing through the Red Sea, they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, what happens to Jesus? Just another chapter beyond that. Well, he is in the wilderness being tempted by, G by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you see the, the parallels? Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. I think Jesus is being identified by Matthew as the better Israel. He's filling up what was lacking 
in Israel. He is the truest and fullest expression of who Israel was supposed to be, okay? But this is not all, okay? Look with me again at the rest of panel number five. We're going to read the remaining verses that we have, beginning in verse 16. So he says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by these wise men, they became furious. he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the children and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." With the arrival of Jesus into a sin-stricken world, God reveals not only the comfort of a better king and a better Israel, but also a better exodus. Okay, that's what we see in this passage. In the midst of this horrific event, okay, we find yet another seemingly stretched prophecy. In its context, Jeremiah 31.15 is actually a word picture, okay? It's a, it's a word picture that's meant to express deep sorrow, deep grief, and deep pain, okay? Uh, in, this, in this word picture, Rachel, who is the wife of Jacob, and Jacob, who is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, is depicted, Rachel's depicted, as mourning for her children, okay? Her children, namely the 12 tribes of Israel, as they are carried into Babylonian exile. That's the context in which this verse is used. But here's the thing. The rest of Jeremiah 31 actually depicts a day when God will rescue his people from exile and inaugurate a new covenant. And so I think that this context would actually have been picked up by the original audience, so here, here's the point. On one hand, I think Matthew is trying to tell the original audience and us that Israel, even though they're in their own land, right, they're in Jerusalem, that they are still in exile. They are still in exile. Just as Rachel is pictured crying uh, at the time of exile, Rachel here is pictured crying now over this horrific massacre, this terrible event of these babies, right? Just as Pharaoh in Exodus 1, right, when they are in the middle of the, ex of the exile, ordered all the young boys to be killed, what does Herod do? He does the same thing. Do you see the parallels here? Just as Moses was spared because he was hidden in a basket, so Jesus was spared by special revelation and was being taken, taken to Egypt. The parallels are simply remarkable. So on one hand, I think Matthew's telling them that they're still in exile. But on the other hand, Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy because he is bringing an end to the exile, okay? As I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah 31, 15 is surrounded by words of consolation, words of promise for, for a greater restoration, for a new covenant, right? And as the books of Ezra 
Nehemiah and Malachi make abundantly clear, right, the initial return, when they came out of Babylonian exile, the Israelites were deeply, sorely disappointed. They're very disappointed by what, what they came out of and into. Uh, the exile, the return from exile, was, fell woefully short of what Jeremiah predicted in chapter 31, okay? And it was begging, begging for a fuller and more complete fulfillment. I think what Matthew is telling us is that this completion is coming in the person of Christ. He is bringing the better exodus, okay? An exodus that we enjoy now in part, but one day in, we'll enjoy in full. An exodus, an exodus from the sins that we deserve. An exodus from the brokenness of this world, which we will one day experience in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, friends, on the road to Calvary, what we find already, even in a, the toddler years of Jesus, is the comforting word of a better king, a better Israel, and a better Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God of the details. Lord, you, even in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of um, the world around us that is swirling and filled with uncertainty, Father, you are a God who works in the details and you love comforting us with your word and reminders that you are the God who's in control. You are the God who saves. You are the God who will bring things to completion. Lord, we look forward to that day and we ask that you, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit that we might follow you and lean upon you this new year. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.